This is Farms Food Future, a podcast that's good for you, good for the planet and good for farmers, brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. I'm Rosa Gonzalez-Goring, standing in for Brian Thompson as your guest presenter for this month's edition. In this month's programme, we look at innovations and new technologies that focus on ensuring food security. But first, we hear the latest on the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on agriculture in the developing world from Murray Haga, Associate Vice President at IFAD. Next up, we'll be travelling around the world hearing about innovations in agriculture that could significantly improve the lives of smallholder farmers. Our journey begins in Côte d'Ivoire in Sub-Saharan Africa, where Florent Clare from chemical industrial company UPL is based. He will tell us about the latest biotechnological products UPL is working on to minimise climate change impacts and make smallholder farmers' lives much easier. Heading up northeast from Africa, we'll be visiting Bindudu, the biggest e-commerce platform in China. E-commerce is especially high on the rural development agenda in COVID-19 times. To learn more about how digital strategies benefit smallholder farmers, we'll be talking to Bindudu representative Shinji Lim. Our next stop is Latin America, where Aqua Foundation concentrates on new technologies to spread indigenous people's knowledge and help them better sell their products. We'll be hearing from Aqua's Emperatriz Arango to find out about the Gourmet Project, which consists of shipping out weekly gourmet boxes and giving online cooking lessons. Home chefs Carmen Campos, Piedad Olivo and Nayib Angulo will tell us about how this project has encouraged women and youth to take part in their region's traditional gastronomy. We will end our trip around the world in the depths of the Amazon, where Chef Rodriguelme tells us about the situation they're facing there with COVID-19. Stay tuned to listen to the delicious recipe he will be sharing with us at the end of this episode. Remember, we want to hear from you, what you think about our stories and whom you want us to be talking to. So please get in touch with us at podcasts at ifad.org. Please subscribe to this podcast via your favorite podcast platform and please rate us. The impact of the COVID-19 pandemic has created supply chain disruptions, reduced availability of agricultural labor and put national food security at risk. The risk of smallholder farmers not having access to seeds due to market restrictions could seriously threaten the next year's planting season and already fragile rural livelihoods, as well as food production. It has been said that COVID-19 treats everybody equally, but that's not true. In this month's update on the pandemic, Associate Vice President at IFAD, Murray Hager, puts the focus on how the situation affects smallholder farmers, women, youth, indigenous peoples and people with disabilities. Targeting these groups specifically contributes to ensure development gains achieved in recent years to build back better. I asked Marie about how projects are being adapted to the crisis and what have been the results so far. First of all, we are mitigating the impact of COVID-19 on our existing portfolio. We have repurposed around 105 million US dollar within existing projects and we speak about 41 projects in more than 20 countries. 
And secondly, we are providing policy analytical support to more than 20 countries by helping governments conduct rapid uh, assessments of COVID-19 impact in the rural sector. We are contributing to development uh, of government response plans. Thirdly, uh, we have created a dedicated time-bound platform to deal with COVID's impact, and we call it the Rural Poor Stimulus Facility, primarily meant to keep production going and uh, getting produced food to the market. But let me also finally add that in the middle of the ongoing crisis, IFAD is also in the middle of uh, raising money for our next work program. We call it IFAD 12. And uh, raising the money for IFAD 12 means raising the money for our work program uh, from uh, next year and another three years ahead. And of course then, how much we are able to raise will define how much we can do to build back better after COVID-19 and also how much we can do to create the resilience for the future that COVID-19 has proven that we need to work on. We also uh, strongly encourage donors to step up not only to immediate action but also for the longer terms. We have so far repurposed more than 105 million US dollar. Um, repurposed funds have mainly been used to support access to inputs, again, seeds, fertilizer, etc. Uh, and it has been used for digital information as well as to provide cash transfers and some emergency equipment and um, support in that uh, context. We can give uh, one example, uh, Cambodia, roughly 24 million US dollar was repurposed for two projects to finance basic production assets like seeds and fertilizers and to provide digital services. Another example could be Ethiopia, uh, where we have repurposed 15 million US dollar for a project to ensure that financial institutions can mitigate the threats to cash flow or project beneficiaries. We are honestly proud of the results we see. It's been amazing to see the agility of our teams on the ground, uh, the agility of our implementing partners and also other partners such as local farmers' organizations. It is uh, indeed true that a crisis can bring about a lot of creativity. It teaches us the value of digitalization and digital services. So as an uh, example, uh, we recently approved a project to provide tailored digital information services in Kenya, Nigeria and Pakistan in partnership with Precision Agriculture for Development, a nonprofit organization co-founded by Nobel Prize uh, winning economist Michael Kramer. We are developing new relationships and I would say we are getting more agile and creative in all the challenges and in all the difficulties the pandemic creates. I'm sure something good also will come out of it as uh, long as we are able to deal with the acute crisis and not lose track of the future. That was IFAD's Marie Hager. You can find out the latest relating to COVID-19 and IFAD's work at ifad.org forward slash COVID-19. 
And next, we head off to Sub-Saharan Africa to talk to UPL's Florent Clare. This is Farms Food Future. There are an estimated 500 million smallholder farming households globally providing 80% of the food supply. UPL, a family-owned company based in India, has been working for 50 years on technological innovations in agriculture. By making food more sustainable, smallholder farmers can prosper and find new ways in which to adapt to climate change. OpenArg is UPL's new model for global agriculture, an open agriculture network that feeds sustainable growth for all. It's all about bringing together the different players in the food system to generate a much deeper impact in society. I spoke to Sustainability and Partnerships Coordinator at UPL, Florent Clare. He tells us about the importance of technological growth and innovations for smallholder farmers. The poorest and most smallholder farmers are also the most affected by climate change, which means that giving them access to these climate smart technologies will, will have an even bigger impact on them. The whole idea of this technology is to bring uh, resilience to their production system. What we're trying to do with the, with the latest technologies and, and, and farming practices that we deliver is to really help them have a better uh, management of water, for example, have a better resistance to uh, drought, have uh, a better protection against uh, emerging threats and new uh, disease or pests. For example, a technology called Ziba, which is maize starch organic product base that is a, a super absorbent that will improve the soil uh, structure and quality. The whole soil health will allow the plant to um, improve the use of not only the, the water, uh, retain water, but also improve the use of uh, nutrients and revive the whole soil. So uh, this is an example for nutrients and, and water management, but uh, we also uh, create a lot of algae-based uh, biosolutions uh, that will dynamize uh, the natural functions of the plants. Florence is based in sub-Saharan Africa, where smallholder farmers are having to deal with, among other things, pests caused by full armyworm. Imported from America, this caterpillar feeds on crops, especially maize, cereals and sorghum. The pest spreads at a rapid rate and is now present all across Africa. According to FAO figures, it's estimated to be threatening the food security of around 300 million people in Africa, causing a loss of close to 40% of harvests. Florent told us about UPL's new biological tool that seeks to solve this problem by turning the pest against itself, taking advantage of its cannibal nature. So currently, um, farming practices to deal with this, uh, this pest is, uh, is either uh, hand-picking, which can be very, very cumbersome and, and not very efficient because the, the pest uh, tends to hide into the, the plant stems. And also, so um, chemical uh, control. So um, they use uh, conventional uh, agrochemical products like insecticides to, uh, to fight against uh, fall armyworm. But so the innovation that we have brought to the industry is called uh, Foligen. It's uh, a product that was created by uh, Agbitech, which is a, a US-based company specialized in uh, biocontrol solutions. So it's actually a, a baculovirus that has historically co-evolved with the caterpillar. So it's a very uh, host-specific virus that uh, has co-evolved uh, with the, the, the fall armyworm. 
and it has uh, basically been inserted and, and transformed into a biocontrol uh, insecticide that you can uh, actually spray as a, as a conventional product. And it has a, a similar efficacy on, on the control of Folami worm, but it is fully organic and uh, very host specific, which means that it wouldn't harm any other uh, insect than, uh, than the Folami worm. And the beauty of it is also that once the virus attacks uh, the pest, it actually uh, multiplies inside the, the caterpillar. So every caterpillar infected becomes like a small factory in itself. And then the Folami worm being cannibalistic, uh, they tend to eat each other and contaminate each other. I asked Florent how they have adapted to the COVID-19 situation and if the prospects for the company are looking good. The global long-term uh, objective uh, now for us is to bring our new technology into the hands of smallholder farmers with, with the help of um, external organizations like bilateral uh, institutions or multinational institutions like, like FAO or the World Bank, or the World Food Programme. And uh, likewise, uh, contribute to uh, feeding the world with, with sustainable, uh, healthy and, and nutritious food. Like any other company, we, we've been uh, affected by uh, longer lead times, for example, or, or a slight drop in, in the demand. But uh, I think what I will remember now for the future is that this, this pandemic has thrown light on the need for a rethink of the world's food systems. And um, we think that with our open ag vision, we're, we're really on the right track to help build uh, more uh, resilient food systems, more uh, self-sufficient uh, food chains uh, for Africa, because uh, we start to see now that uh, in this uh, post-COVID or even if in the COVID situation, you don't want to rely on external imports for, for food. We cannot take, uh, take for granted uh, the access to, uh, to food, uh, and so it's important to be also um, self-sufficient uh, here locally. That was Florent Clare from UPL, and this is Farms Food Future. Our next stop is China, where most of the rural population relies on agriculture for income and subsistence. Land degradation in the form of salinization, desertification or soil erosion affects over 40% of the country's territory. Chinese company Bindudu uses e-commerce as a way to improve agriculture and food systems. But how can e-commerce help smallholder farmers? To answer this question, we have Bindudu representative Xin Yilim joining us today. Pinduoduo was founded in 2015 and it has its roots in agricultural produce. So initially what we were selling was only agricultural products and we were selling it through a first party business model where we took inventory. We got the users to actually share the product links through their social networks in order to enjoy more savings. And this really helped us grow very rapidly. So I think Pinduoduo is very distinctive in its emphasis on social and interactive e-commerce. So our approach is less so of a conventional e-commerce model whereby you go and search for something and then you maybe, you know, filter, you find the thing that you want and then you leave. Our approach is actually more about building a fun and engaging environment for 
users to discover all kinds of products. So it's a bit more like browsing your Facebook or Instagram feed. You might discover things that you didn't have a very sharp or specific requirement for. But then once you see it, you're like, oh, hey, this looks pretty interesting. Or it could be something that is tagged as um, you know, a store that your friend bought from or a, a product that your friend has given a five-star review for. Now, when this comes to agricultural products, it's especially helpful because for agricultural goods, most people don't have a very tangible or fixed kind of need, right? So you may not think, oh, I have to eat apples today or I have to buy apples today. You might be open to you know, other kinds of fruit, especially if your friend then sends you a link and says, hey, Rosie, you know, there's a deal for oranges today. So if we both buy oranges, we get to enjoy it at a 20% discount. And you might think, huh, okay, why not? Right. So for agricultural products, this is something that we've been able to leverage to help producers who have excess supply get their products to market in a quick and efficient manner. Through this approach, what we have seen is that the smallholder farmers get a bigger share of the economic value chain. Because in the conventional, sort of more traditional offline mode of distribution, what typically happens is that the farmer has very little bargaining power. China is dominated by smallholder farmers. So each smallholder farmer by themselves doesn't really have very much say in terms of influencing the price that their produce fetches. Now, in the conventional offline model, typically there are wholesalers who would um, sort of go around at the county level or provincial level and just roll up all the produce, right? And with each layer of these distributors, they actually add markups. So that means that they actually suppress the amount that gets paid to the smallholder farmers. There's all these markups in between and so by the time the product reaches the consumer's hands, it may have already had its price inflated by anything between five to seven times. So with this e-commerce model, what we are doing is that we're enabling smallholder farmers to become more like a merchant. So they can actually take more control and they can actually get more direct feedback when they sell directly to consumers. E-commerce is especially high on the rural development agenda in COVID-19 times because it provides farmers with an alternative that contributes to making them more resilient. They can connect directly to the market and get feedback in real time, for example about the products that are selling better or the packaging consumers prefer. The money they save can then be reinvested in the farms. Xinyi told me about the company's new developments and their vision on sustainability. One thing that we are also doing as well is to leverage our platform to deliver inputs as well as training to the farmers. So a farmer is able to buy, for instance, fertilizer as well as seeds and other agricultural inputs. And at the same time, we have held live streaming classes whereby agricultural experts from partner institutes such as the China Academy of Engineering are able to deliver specialized agronomic seminars to the farmers who are watching via live stream. In terms of making um, you know, the purchasing more sustainable, I think in general, China already has a very well-developed e-commerce uh, backdrop. So it's just for agricultural goods that the online penetration is relatively low. So against a total online penetration of over 20% uh, for retail in China, agricultural goods only have about a 6 to 7% online penetration rate. So it's still relatively low. So when it comes to actually making the purchasing more sustainable, this does depend on, of course, continued improvements in logistics. Now, at the same time, we're also aware that on the supply side, that 
there also needs to be more innovation to make the production more sustainable because the farming population is aging rapidly. A lot of the young people have left to go and work in the big cities. And at the same time, uh, you know, China only has 8% of the world's arable land, right? But it already has uh, a lot more mouths to feed. So how do we drive that productivity in China? So one of the things that we try to do as a tech company is to introduce agri-tech to the farmers. So we have a project called Duoduo Farms, where together with the Yunnan provincial government, we have actually created uh, pilot farms across Yunnan in the impoverished counties, whereby we actually restructure how the farmers are organized. We put them in co-ops, and then when they have a big continuous plot of land, we're then able to introduce technology such as drip irrigation to the farmers to raise their productivity. Now, other things that we're also doing to bridge the gap between the more technologically savvy kind of farming and more traditional farmers is through our smart agriculture competition, which we launched a few months ago. Through this competition, we're pitting traditional strawberry growers against more digital tech-savvy teams who are using IoT, machine learning, sensors uh, to try and grow strawberries in the same window entirely remotely in a smart greenhouse. So this is a way for us to actually make agri-tech more tangible to the farmers and to also show them that, you know, it's not just all extra costs and no extra profits, right? It's actually something that is very tangible and it is possible for them to implement. Thank you, Xinyi Lim, for the insight on e-commerce. This is Farms Food Future. Now we will be traveling all the way from China to Latin America, where the Afro-Descendant Cultural Assets Foundation, Aqua, are developing technological innovations and digital solutions for smallholder farmers. Aqua works with IFAD developing projects focused on traditional food knowledge. Since the COVID-19 pandemic began, Aqua has cooked up the Kume project. The aim of this initiative is to promote rural Afro-descendant communities through the commercialization of culture, traditional knowledge and local crops. I spoke to Aqua's deputy head, Emperatriz Arango, who specializes in design and implementation of development strategies with cultural identity in rural communities in Latin America. She told me about their strategy and the projects the Aqua Foundation is currently working on. The Afrocultural Assets Foundation, ACWA, began life as part of IFAD's Latin America division in 2007. Today, it's a non-profit organization operating in Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, Brazil and Bolivia. ACWA works using three complementary strategies. Our first aim is to encourage society to recognize and value the traditional knowledge of Afro-descendant communities. Secondly, we promote actions that in turn become economic income generators for these families. And finally, we help advance their inclusion in society through advocacy actions on public agendas. Working with our partners, we aim to add value, be it social, environmental or economic, to the community's natural and cultural assets and transform them into the best products and services that the territories can offer. Today, more than ever, there's a need to work for biodiversity. Valuing the community's use of biodiversity helps preserve the lives and activities of smallholder farmers and local producers. Protecting, but at the same time promoting innovation in traditional cuisine, represents a commitment to the dynamic and inclusive conservation of biodiversity. 
Our work to recover age-old practices associated with gastronomy, local productive ecosystems and traditional knowledge of Afro-communities began more than 10 years ago. The COVID-19 crisis has led us to rethink the use of technology in establishing new bridges between rural and urban areas. This coordination between digital transformation and traditional knowledge has great potential to change the world we live in. It's something new that communities, stakeholders, institutions and others are learning from together. The Aqua Foundation, in partnership with IFAD, has created a commercial platform for initiatives that value knowledge associated with traditional cuisine and beverages. Kume, as the project is known, means to eat in the local language of San Basilio de Palenque on the Colombian-Caribbean coast. The Palenque people were the first free Afro-descendants in colonial America, and as such are of great historical and cultural importance. This village in the north of the country is in fact a UNESCO World Heritage Site. In order to enhance new forms of market access for community products, we're developing different marketing channels that connect consumers with food producers and processors. One of the channels we use is what we call Kume experiences. This consists of baskets of products from indigenous communities delivered to the homes of consumers in the main cities of Colombia, along with a virtual class given by traditional chefs and connoisseurs. Kume owes its success mainly to the fact that families in many countries are currently confined to their homes and are looking for new experiences. The limitations imposed by the current pandemic have made actual travel to and between Latin American countries difficult, if not impossible. Kume gives people the opportunity to visit the kitchens of rural Colombia from the comfort of their own home and to get a taste of their culture and identity. The value chain associated with managing each experience has helped reactivate producers' livelihoods at a critical time for local economies. That was Emperatriz Arango from Aqua. Now to find out more about the Kume Initiative, I spoke to chefs Carmen Campos from Peru, Piedad Olivo from Ecuador and Nayib Angulo from Colombia. They are actively supporting the project by giving cooking lessons via Zoom. Chef Carmen Campos from Lima, Peru, leads the Afro-Peruvian Association for Development and Culture, Ubuntu, which works in community training focusing on art, sports and gastronomy with cultural identity. She told me about her experience working as a chef for the Kume project. I think it's a very interesting project. It seeks to pass on the ancestral knowledge of Afro people, and the project's objectives of economic, social and political empowerment seem very positive. The work is based on traditional practices with the aim of achieving social recognition for Afro women and education for young people. We need to train young people and women to continue to pass on our grandparents' and great-grandparents' knowledge. I asked Chef Carmen about the products she cultivates and uses to prepare her dishes that she thinks are undervalued nowadays. Quinoa grain is a food grown in the Andes, but there it is known as chisilla, which means mother grain. It's highly nutritious, and I think that name was given to it, because here on the coast, when women gave birth, they were given Quaker oats mixed with quinoa, because the grandmothers and great-grandmothers said that this generated more milk flow, and as a result, mothers could breastfeed better. 
más flujo de leche para que pudieran dar de lactar. Preserving and passing on traditional indigenous gastronomy knowledge is vital for keeping the culture alive, but also to ensure food security. Chef Carmen told us about the importance of this and the repercussion it has on the communities. Now we are immersed in this project and I love it because it means I'm passing on and preserving the knowledge that I have inherited from my ancestors. For many years we've been working with young people and children from the southern Chincha region. Last year we took the book Ahum, said my grandmother, 200 years of Afro-Peruvian cuisine with us. And we've been working with it, but unfortunately with the pandemic everything has closed. But I don't think you can stand by and do nothing. We started making Afro desserts and preparing food for delivery. The idea was to enter the market, the big supermarkets, but well, this pandemic has affected everyone. And we cannot just sit still and do nothing. We have to carry on somehow, move forward as far as we are allowed to. There's nothing better than buying natural products directly from the farmer. Here in Lima we cannot do it, but it can be done. I try to source my own products and I prepare them myself. None of our dishes nor our desserts are prepared with processed ingredients or anything like that. I make everything from scratch here in the house. I make it, I process it and everything. Food has to be natural. It's healthier too and that way we're supporting small farmers because they do their planting and have to wait many months for their products to be ready. I've had the opportunity to be in Piura, in Chapica, and I've seen the work, the process of planting and harvesting, and in Chincha too, where I go constantly. The farmer's work is hard. People leave home at three or four in the morning, and at seven or eight, when everybody else is getting up, they come back from work. So we have to support these people, definitely. Thank you, Chef Carmen Campos, for joining us from Peru. Moving on to our next chef, Piedad Olivo from Ecuador. Piedad is originally from Esmeraldas and lives in Same. She studies law and works for the defense of human rights. During her childhood, she learned to cook with her mother, who is also a follower of Afro traditions. She explained what the project has meant to her community in COVID-19 times. The Kume project has provided us with a distraction at a time when we are faced with a significant health crisis. This situation has been a major cause of fear and anxiety. The virus has frightened and overwhelmed us. We mothers and housewives don't know how best to care for our families and children. It's been hard to accept that we're at the mercy of a disease like this. The Kume project has allowed us to think of something else and has helped to take our mind off the virus. The program has also given us financial support in these very difficult times. I also think it's very important to reactivate the economy of our sectors, at the same time giving emotional support to all the participants, because it's not only cooking, it's also culture, music. At the present time, culture is being a little relegated. Our customs are being sidelined and a significant number of young people know nothing about our ancestors' knowledge and gastronomy. The important thing is not to give up so that we can safeguard our customs. 
and at the same time capture the interest of our young people. This will ensure that they will keep our traditions alive and carry on cooking the way we always have. Programs like the Kume project help our young people to understand the beauty and importance of our culture and encourage them to take an interest. For the Kume project, I made a kind of stew we call encocado with coriander also known in Ecuador as chiangua or encocado with oregano. These are products that are native to our region of Esmeralda. The online cooking classes were viewed in Quito, the capital of Ecuador, and in other parts of the country. They give us the opportunity to reach people who show an interest in local products like chiangua and oregano. If we carry on making different dishes as part of the project, people will become familiar with other products we cultivate like zapallo, a kind of pumpkin that grows in this area. If the products we cultivate are valued elsewhere, our young people will start growing them as well. Thank you, Chef Pilato Olivo, for sharing with us the importance of passing on traditional knowledge so food preservation is ensured. Next up is Chef Nayib Angulo from Buenaventura, Colombia. Nayibe is one of the leaders of the Corporación Social Medioambiental Ecológica y Turística, an organization founded in 2012 aimed at solving migration problems caused by glycophyte fumigation that was taking place in Buenaventura. She focuses on recovering native seeds and traditional recipes in order to protect natural resources in her area. She told me about her latest project with Aqua aimed at recovering the plantations of her ancestors. Nosotros hemos estado trabajando con Aqua en el proyecto de we have been working with Aqua on the project to re-establish azoteas. Azoteas are little patches of ground next to the houses where our grandmothers grew edible and aromatic plants to enrich traditional cuisine. Many women have told me that they make infusions from the plants we sow on a daily basis to boost their defences. So this project has been a really positive force during the pandemic and it's great to have Aqua always working alongside us. We believe that when you're doing something you enjoy, it helps you to forget about many things. With regard to Kume, we haven't been able to export much recently because of transport issues, but we're still here. Kume provides a platform to give prominence to our local products. It's a great opportunity for us to show what we grow and process in our region. Kume events give us the chance to publicize produce grown in rural Afro-Colombian communities. The aim of Aqua and IFAD is to help everyone living in any Afro-Colombian territory to make the most of what they have, what they produce for their own consumption, but also let other people know about these products. They are events which highlight the gastronomy of each region and the need for this gastronomy to be valued. I am convinced that Aqua is an organization, and an enterprise, created with the sole aim of supporting rural communities and highlighting their potential. I hope that Kume will be successful enough to allow us to sell our products both at home and abroad. I have high hopes for Kume, and I trust that it will really help the community development of Township Number 8 of the Llano Bajo Community Council. I believe that this project will help improve the quality of life of many women and families in this township, and that women who grow plants because they need to feed themselves and their families will realize that they can benefit from selling these products through platforms like Kume. 
I asked Chef Nayibe about the dishes she prepared for the Kume project online cooking classes. She told me about the most popular ones and about the ingredients she uses. Bago, also known as bell fruit, grows mainly on the Pacific coast and is also found on the Caribbean coast of Antioquia. And bringamosa, known as the common nettle, is a medicinal plant with healing properties. I think that the bringamosa roll with fish proved popular, as well as the bringamosa and rice dish. We also made paco fruit wraps with guava and aratha sauce, and people really seemed to enjoy these dishes. But the biggest hits were the lemongrass drink, the iced lemongrass tea, and the venturosa tea. Our dishes are always successful because they're nutritious, tasty, and innovative. I believe that pringamosa and paco are the two most underrated ingredients. They've always been eaten, but in small quantities, and that has meant that today many people dismiss pringamosa, for example, which is known commonly as a nettle, because it's unfamiliar to them and they're unaware how good it is for them. They don't know it's edible. People stopped cultivating paco for similar reasons, and nothing else can replace this fruit. That's why I think these are the most underrated ingredients. I think it's important to pass this culinary knowledge from generation to generation. Firstly, so that our customs are not lost. And secondly, because this way we make sure that our local traditional products are not lost. It's the best way of safeguarding the Afro culture, particularly our gastronomic culture, and also of ensuring that our children eat a healthy diet. We believe that our ancestors lived to such a ripe old age because they We have just heard from three women chefs working for the Kume project. Carmen Campos from Peru, Piedad Olivo from Ecuador, and Nayib Angulo from Colombia. You are listening to Farms, Food, Future. COVID-19 is spreading at a devastating rate among the world's most isolated indigenous communities in the Amazon rainforest. Lack of security measures has meant that the virus has reached isolated areas via people travelling by boat. The Amazon region has the highest number of cases of COVID-19 in Brazil in proportion to population. 15 of the 20 Brazilian cities with the highest percentage of inhabitants killed by COVID-19 are located in the Amazon. The coronavirus has already reached small cities surrounded by jungle and indigenous areas like Tabatinga. This lies on the border with Peru and Colombia and only 80 kilometers away from the Havari Valley Indigenous Territory. It's one of the areas with the highest concentration of isolated indigenous communities in the world. These communities are essential in the struggle to slow global warming. They protect the world's largest rainforest and have a profound knowledge of rainforest species, which they use for traditional medicines. A recent study published by the PNAS journal under the title Collective Property Rights Reduce Deforestation in the Brazil Amazon reveals that indigenous populations can effectively curb deforestation. Most deforestation of indigenous territories occurs at the borders as land grabbers, loggers and farmers invade. This study shows that, once full property rights are recognised, indigenous people are historically able to reduce deforestation at those borders from around 3% to 1%, a reduction of 66%.
COVID-19 has come at a critical time for people in the Amazon who were already facing problems of land degradation and crop loss due to the devastating fires that raged out of control last year. It is vital that we continue to work to safeguard these communities and prevent the current crisis becoming a threat to food security as well as health. We spoke to Chef Roy Riquelme from the region of Madre de Dios in Peru. He told us about the work he does with his project Cooking and Preserving and his future prospects. I grew up in a rural community. My father was a farmer and I helped him grow fruit and vegetables on our small holding. We took everything we grew to the kitchen where my mother then cooked tasty meals. Since we produced our own food, each season we harvested different products from our small holding. Seeing the ingenious way my mother thought up new dishes inspired me to learn more about cooking. The first dish I learned to make was tacacho, which is made with plantains and served with chorizo, various freshly harvested regional vegetables and salted dried pork known as cecina. I also learned other typical Amazonian dishes such as juane, patarashka, chicken inchicapi, fish tombuche, and then I started studying cuisine in the city, where I learned about Novo Andina cuisine and our Peruvian Creole dishes. When I was young, I gathered many ingredients in the forest, such as palm fruits, Brazil nuts, mushrooms, bark, or even medicines. Now these forests are threatened by mining and illegal logging, particularly in the Madre de Dios region where I grew up. Seeing everything that was going on in the Amazon and wanting to contribute my knowledge to its conservation, I started the cooking and conserving project, Cocinando y Conservando, so people would learn about our gastronomy to better understand the value of the forest. Our purpose is to focus our work on promoting the sustainable use of Amazonian resources to ensure food security in the Peruvian Amazon communities. We need to pay close attention to the need for environmentally responsible cooking. Now, the Amazonian peoples are facing difficult times with COVID-19. When the government decreed the state of emergency at the start of the pandemic, they began to close bridges and roads, preventing boat access to rivers. So people living in the Amazonian communities chose isolation as the best way to protect themselves from the threat of the coronavirus. They are now surviving the pandemic thanks to the forest and rivers using natural resources. To reach the communities and farmers, the cooking and conserving project develops virtual or recorded cooking classes, which can be seen in their communities. We try to explain the importance of healthy eating and the benefits of each product they use. At some point, I want to publish a book containing ancestral recipes and innovative dishes using sustainable products. I want to set up a sustainable cookery school in my region to teach new generations how important it is to cook with healthy and sustainable ingredients. I also want to form a team of professionals to work in communities focusing on malnutrition and anemia. We are currently working with the Association of Organic Farmers in Madre de Dios. It is an agricultural cooperative founded in 1992. We are supportive of these organic farmers 
and directly helped contribute to improve their economy. Chef Roy Riquelme gave us the sweetest possible ending to this journey, the recipe for his Brazilian nut sauce with cocoa. Our main star ingredient here in the Madre de Dios region in Tambapata is what we call the castanha. This is actually the Brazil nut, which we eat either raw or roasted. It is rich in protein and essential amino acids for people with nutritional deficiencies. The recipe I created using this nut is a Brazil nut sauce with cocoa, which serves seven to eight people. The main ingredient we're going to use is roasted Brazil nut. Then we're going to use cream cheese, cocoa paste, milk or boiled water and aromatic leaves. I like to put about four coriander leaves, known in Peru as sacha cilantro, and salt to taste. First, gently roast the Brazil nut for five minutes. Then, put it in the blender along with the cheese, cocoa paste, and your aromatic leaves of choice. Mix to a thick paste with milk or water and add salt to taste. This sauce can be served with boiled or baked potatoes and even with fries. It makes a good accompaniment for meat or fish. And that brings us to the end of this edition of Farms Food Future. Thanks to our producer Francesco Manetti and everyone else who has worked on this program. But most of all, thanks to you for listening to this episode of Farms Food Future, brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. You can find out more about any of these stories at www.ifad.org forward slash podcasts. Remember, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and issues discussed? And who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch with us at podcast at efad.org. Send us your voice or text messages to that address and we'll be happy to play you out in the next show. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast platform and please rate us. We'll be back at the end of December with more news fresh from the farm. December 3rd is International Day of Persons with Disability. Tune into Farms Food Future next month. We'll be talking about the need to change the mindset and the importance of people with disabilities as active members of society and rural economies. And once again, we'll be trying to be good for you, good for the planet and good for the farmers. Until then, from me, Rosa Gonzalez-Goring, your guest presenter for this month and the team here at IFAD, thanks for listening.